hello and welcome. You're listening to Lore and Legend with your hosts Sebastian O'Dell and Rick Scott. Every week we bring you a legendary tale inspired by the rich traditions of world folklore and mythology. In this episode, Thomas is confronted with a vision of hell and told a tale of the jealous passions which wreak magical transformations on a northern princess and her fey stepmother. This is the Laidly Worm of Spindleson Hugh. While she rode upon her milk-white steed, and I held her waist behind, Until we came to a fawny road that with our path entwined. What road is that? O to her I said, O please, to me do tell. She said, That is a road you must never tread, For that road, it leads to hell. And by the dim light in that place, Thomas could see that the road was strewn with strange and distorted pilgrims, with bodies that were part human and part beast. And as they rode, the Queen gave him to understand how the passions of the heart could so easily misshape the flesh. Well, there was once a girl who lived in the land of Northumbria, in the village of Bamborough, where lies a great castle and the church of St. Aidan. And she heard told that down at Spindleston Hugh, there lived a great and loathsome worm. And the breath of this worm was so hot and poisonous that for seven miles east and seven miles west and seven miles north and south, no blade of grass or corn would grow. So deadly was her mouth, unless she was fed every morning with the milk of seven fat-fleshed cows. For word went east and word went west, word is gone out over the sea, that a laidly worm in Spindleston Hugh would ruin the north country. And in spite of all her mother's words of warning, the girl was sore tempted to see this worm. So one morning... She stole down to the rocky crags to see the feeding. She watched from behind a rock as the seven cows were led by seven maids to a deep cut where they milked the cows and poured it in. And then as they worked, the great worm itself hove into sight and glided down to the great stone trough where it began to suck and gulp down the milk. But... Most astonishing of all to the girl was this. After one great gulp, the worm gave out a loud belch. And the women who were milking the cows did not scream or cry or faint. But they laughed. And as they laughed, the great worm rolled its head and began to honk for all the world like it was joining in. Now the girl, she watched open-mouthed as she did so. Up spoke a voice just behind her. Aye, well they do laugh, for though she has the flesh of a snake, that loathsome worm has the heart of a human woman. She was a girl once, the daughter of our northern king Eider, and lived at the castle of Bamborough with her father and her mother and her brother, and her name was Margaret. Now while they were yet young, sister and brother once strayed at their games near the edge of the woods. And there they met a strange girl who had no mother or father to mind her. 
The girl had roaming eyes that couldn't look straight, and wild brown hair as thick and twined as gorse, and was dressed all in coarse shirts of hemp. But despite her strangeness, Margaret at once fell in a fierce and passionate love for her. The sylvan girl taught them strange dances and sad songs, she spent a great deal of time talking to the spirits, which she said caused the leaves to sprout and the flowers to open and the streams to run over all of the earth. And after their first meeting, she could call to Margaret and her brother at night, and they were able to walk out of the castle to meet her, past all the men and the women of the house, without being seen. Oh, and they would play together, and she used to sing. She would sing of a strange place and a strange kingdom, like it was the place that she had come from. The kingdom was called Benicia, and the place was Dingauri, or sometimes Joyous God. Well, things continued in this kind until one day, Margaret came when the sylvan girl called, but her brother, Wind, did not. And when she asked him why, Wind scowled. And he said that it wasn't right to play with her. Then while Margaret continued to play with the sylvan girl, Wind played at riding and wrestling and jousting with spears, until a day came when he went away on a ship to train as a knight in some castle over the sea. Never without each other were Margaret and the sylvan girl, until came the day when Margaret's mother fell dangerously ill. She died. And when that happened, the two held each other in their arms, and the girl promised her that they would be together until the end of the world, and Margaret believed her. But now Margaret and her father were alone, and in his grief her father turned in on himself, so that Margaret was forced to care for everything and every one in the castle. And when she went to bed at night she was so tired that she went straight to sleep, even when she heard all the doors in the castle and the courtyard yawn open, and the sylvan girl waiting for her beyond all of them. Days and months passed, and gradually Margaret forgot about the wild-haired girl. She became the castle's mistress or castellan, and around her waist she wore the chatelaine, the silver chains from which hung the keys to every door in the place and she commanded, while her father kept to his chambers. Then one day when her father's hollow cheeks seemed fuller, he asked for his boots and his saddle and his crop, and he rode out into the near woods, he felt newly kindled by the morning air, and as he rode, his reverie was invaded by a sound like the soft tinkling of bells, and there worked a strange attraction on the old man's heart. Following the sound, he came through a parting in the trees, and there before him stood a vision, a sylvan woman, svelte and slight of figure. She had grey eyes that focused on him sharply. Her hair was thick, but tightly coiled like braided vines. 
and she wore a gown that was woven as artfully as the spider weaves its web. She was singing a bright song, and she smiled at King Ida, and already the king was lost, entranced in the magic of his own imagination. Well, the North King returned with his strange love, and there were none that recognised her, none that could fault her beauty, none excepting Margaret. She watched the Sylvan woman with darkness in her heart, and she set her face, though her heart was in turmoil, while her father raced across the country in haste to gather a train of lords and chieftains to accompany him to the chapel and marry her. And when Margaret saw the wedding party returning to the castle, she came down from the battlements to the foot of the gate, and when all were watching with expectation that the daughter should hand the chatelaine to her stepmother, she turned around, and she cast the silver keys back over her left shoulder, and they fell at the new queen's feet, and everyone gasped. <laughs> Oh, the king is gone from Bamborough Castle, and long may the princess mourn. Long may she stand on the castle wall, looking for his return. She has knotted the keys upon a string, and with her she has them tamed, and she has cast them o'er her left shoulder, and to the gate she has gained. Well, that evening the new queen came to Margaret's chamber. She tried to embrace Margaret and said to her, Surely now, now they were together till the world came to an end. But Margaret said, I know thee not, except for a stranger and a sorceress who has bewitched my father. And the new queen's face went slack, and she drew herself in. She scowled at Margaret. For those words she said, I'll give you these. I weird ye to be a laidly worm that warps about the stove, until child wind, the king's own son, come to the hue and thrice kisses own, until the world comes to an end, never again shall you be won. And Margaret closed the queen out of her chamber, and with rage in her heart she went to her bed, cursing. Next morning, her maidens came to the chamber and called out to her. But there they stopped cold, for in the sheets where the lady should have laid, there curled a cold and wingless worm, great in length and girth, with rolling eyes, twitching whiskers and fur and scales on its belly. At first the maiden screamed, while the worm goggled and honked back at them in return. Then it uncoiled itself from the princess's sheets, heaved itself over the sill of the tower window, and vanished quickly from the castle and from sight. Since that day, here the laidly worm has made its lair in the cave at Spindleston Hugh, and coiled itself tightly around the spindle rock, 
and unless his appetite be sated with the fat flesh of seven cows, then she wreaks havoc and destruction upon the land all hereabouts. Now the girl from Banborough had made careful watch of the woman who told her this tale, and with her child's eyes she saw her body was both young and ancient. Her eyes were both ugly and beautiful, and the woman was surely the very same queen that had married the North King. When she was finished, the queen descended the rocks, climbed up to the head of the spindle rock, and there she sat, there she sang, and the laidly worm laid its head in her lap. Well, I tell you, from that day forward, the Bamber girl went to watch the maidens feeding the laidly worm every morning. And every day she watched, and sometimes she would see the queen come to seek the company of the worm. And together the queen and the worm would watch the storms in the sky and on the ocean. And one day as the worm drank its fill from its dairy trough, there was an exclamation from the maids. They pointed out to where a ship's sail could be seen crossing the far horizon and emblazed on the sail with the crossed arms of the night so wind. And what they saw, the queen could see from Ida's castle. The queen looked out at her bower window to see what she could see, and there she espied a gallant ship sailing upon the sea. At once the queen set to her conjuring, and she summoned the unseely sprites, the spirits of the squall and the tidal waters. These she sent forth to raise a storm and break the boat of child wind against the jagged rocks of the shore. And when she beheld the silken sails full glancing in the sun, to sink the ship she sent away her witch-wives every one. The air filled with strange cries and the sky with strange lights, but the ship sliced through the water all the same. For child Wind and his comrades had built their ship with their own hands, and from prow to stern the keel was carved from the wood of the rowan tree. The spells were vain, the hags returned to the queen in sorrowful mood, crying that witches have no power where there is rowan tree wood. So then, the queen conjured the laidly worm itself, so that she was compelled to come down from the rock to the shore and shield the length of the beach with her unbridling body. With cries of anguish and self-loathing, the worm curled and contorted its own body around the length of the long ship. On the deck, Wind looked up at the miles of glistening flesh, called out to his men to row harder and stronger. Three times, the worm caught up the ship in its coils, dragged it back from the shore into the sea, until Child Wind ordered the ship to turn about. It rowed away from the shore, headlong. Margaret watched the boat retreating, with longing and despair in her heart. She crept back, crossed to the hue, and there the queen was waiting for her, with open arms, and she cradled her scaly head in her hands as she wept. But while Worm and Queen laid there together, 
Banbury girl was looking out, and she saw that the long ship's sail had rounded the point and drawn in again at a place called Buddle Creek. There, Child Wind landed with a band of armed men, and bristling with a cruel array of swords and bows and arrows, they rushed across the land to the lip of Spindleston Hugh. Fanning out across the crag, they approached with their swords drawn and their bows bent, and Child Wind, approaching, threw his own horse's bridle across the spindle, so that henceforth it would always be known as Bridle Rock. But as Wind prepared to march down and butcher the laidly worm, convinced it had done evil to his sister, he felt a hand on his armoured glove. He glanced about, and he saw a girl standing there at his side. Wait, she told him. Wait and listen. And the night paused. And he listened, but all he could hear was the sound of the wind. But it was a deep sound, and a mournful one. And as it rose and as it fell, he was filled with a great weight of sadness, such as he had never felt. He sat down on the crag, and he gazed down upon the worm and the woman who embraced it. And as he looked, the worm opened its eyes and gazed back at him in return. And as they stared at each other, all of Child Wind's memories welled up within him. Memories of his mother, his father, his sister, and the strange sylvan girl of the wood. He sat until his face was wet with tears and there was no whisper of doubt within his heart. Then Child Wind stood and climbed down the steps of the crag, leaving his sword lying on the rock shelf behind him. He crossed to the place where his sister's ungainly head was laid in the witch queen's lap, and he leant across, and he kissed the worm's head three times. He kissed her, and there was a sound of distant thunder. The sky above them spun. The world turned over, and the worm curled, its flesh shriveled, and its skin split. And there, nestled in the rinds of dead snake flesh, lay his sister, Margaret. Margaret's eyes opened. So did the Queen's. And she watched as Margaret embraced her brother Wind. And then he glanced at the Queen and his eyes were filled with knowing and with sadness. He reached out with a wand made from rowan wood and he touched the queen on the skin of her arm. As soon as he touched her, the queen began to shrivel before their eyes, shrinking until her body had reduced to that of a large and loathsome toad. She hissed, and she croaked, and she leapt down from the rocks, and she made her way back along the path towards Bamber Castle where they say that she hid herself in the spaces and the cracks of the keep in the deep foundations. For the rest of their lives, Margaret or Wind or the little girl of Bamborough 
would sometimes hear that on the sand near Ida's tower there crawled a loathsome toad, whose venom she spat on every maid she met. Sometimes they thought they caught sight of her crossing the castle courtyard, or thought they could hear a deep croaking if they paused to listen at the lip of the castle's well. But to this day they say that a loathsome toad is seen still haunting the neighbourhood of Bambra Keep, and the wicked witch is that laidly toad. But she said, Thomas, you must hold your tongue, whatever you may hear or see, for speak you a word of elfin land, and your own soil you'll never more see. What's your reaction to that? I very, very much enjoyed it. Um, Sam, how much of it was um, the original tale of the Laidly Worm, and how much of it was your own, uh, or would that be telling? <laughs> no, this is probably a prime example of me uh, fucking with folk tales, uh, as I like to call it. But with this one, I just had the sense as I read it that, you know, as... Um, uh, interested in the Laidly Worm, I liked the the idea of the um, the sister and the transformation and the relationship between her and her brother. Mm. But I was slightly bored by the character of the wicked stepmother, um, yeah. because what we've seen all before the the original motivation in the tale is uh, is jealousy. Yeah, uh, it's uh, a, the, a classic Snow White. Story. Classic Snow White story. The 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 stepmother arrives at the castle, and all the lords and ladies are like, "Oh, she's beautiful," and then the daughter comes out, and they're all like, "Oh, but she's even more beautiful." <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, heard it all before, uh, and there wasn't much that was very compelling there. So I thought that the only way to really inject some new life into that aspect of the tale was if do something different and also and somehow use that to kind of also deepen this uh, connection to the world of the hidden folk and the fairy mm, and yes. all that kind of thing and so I established a, a pre-existing connection between uh, Margaret and the um, and the mother um, yes that I found very interesting very interesting for a very specific reason which I don't think many people will share which is that um, there's that moment in the story when uh, Margaret's mother dies and uh, the, 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 the sovereign girl takes her in her arms and promises that they will be uh, together until the, um, the ends of the earth. And it, if, I, if I was one to believe in the collective unconscious notions of Carl Jung... <clears throat> 
of Carl Jung. This might be a perfect time for me to bust that sort of uh, theory out because I um, I wrote a story in which a um, an entirely like, entirely original story in which a young girl's mother dies or she receives premonitions that her mother is going to die and out of nowhere. In, in the moment when she's receiving these premonitions, a, a young girl of her own age appears um, and embraces her. And she, you know, this out of this kind of like sharing in the, in, in, in the tragedy and the sorrow of the event, they, they, they form a very, very close friendship. Um, and that wasn't the only element that I... Uh, there was also that she had to leave that girl to return to her father to look after him. Um, so as that was unfolding in your story, I was sort of going, what? <laughs> Did we share in some form of collective dream? <laughs> I was wondering whether we were sharing that with a, you know, uh, <laughs> generations of people. Or an, an archetypical... Narrative. Yeah. yeah, whether I well, that's interesting. some of that had seeped into my brain when coming up with the story, or whether um, this was just that you and I had the same idea when working with the story arc. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because you know, it's um, there's this kind of um, kind of this world of uh, sort of intense passion and love, but then also the discomfort that kind of arises from the the transformation of, but also the, the, the crossing of different roles. So you've got the two girls. Um, one of the girls grows up to take the place of her mother. Yeah. And, was, and sort of so there's an element of you know the the friendship between them isn't explicitly sexual, mm. but she goes from from being a a lover of some kind, a, a, you know whether yes. that's a deeply cherished childhood companion to you know as you know as you grow you know the the development of the sexual aspect comes into it and then all and then she becomes. A contender for her own father's affections, um, so there's all kinds of uh, possibly more Freudian than, than <laughs> uh, sort of kind of like uh, themes uh, or uh, currents at play there, mm. um, which were very intentional. I was deliberately so. Yeah, because she takes. She she takes her mother's place in order to be with her. She doesn't want the king, you know. She mm. makes that clear in that scene in the bedroom, but she's rejected. Yes, I thought it was quite interesting because what you did was make the um, the witch, or the, the wicked uh, stepmother, into a very morally ambiguous character, because all through it you get her embracing uh, the. Margaret in the form of, of the worm um, and then at the very end Wind takes the executive decision to reduce her to a loathsome toad <laughs> and then she's sort of hidden amongst the foundations of the castle forever and 
I wasn't sure whether we were supposed to be getting the notion that um, in the form, in this sort of dragon form, um, Margaret doesn't have any of her own capacities. She doesn't have sort of capacity for judgment. Because if she did, then it would be clear in some ways that she had kind of accepted the love of this woman. Uh, which, as soon as her brother had cast her into the form of Toad, um, she simply accepts as gone and ignores it and is perfectly happy with the notion that her uh, long-lost friend is a foul Toad. Well, we don't... I mean, she did it, we don't, we're not told that. That's true. I suppose in my mind what's going on here is that it's, again, it's like this strangely odd sort of slightly incestuous relationship. Yes. And uh, the, so the queen showed up, she's been rejected. She turns Margaret into the worm. Yes. At this stage, you know, she, it's, it's a, uh, a possibly unhealthy relationship, but it's a relationship nonetheless, you know, it's one of, it's a, a, it's a power relationship, you know, and she is there and she has her inner power and, and they do have this pre-existing relationship. Mm. Um, and then her brother comes back to claim her as his own. Well, to, to free her, but, um. I wanted kind of a recognition there that isn't in the original tale that even he recognises some of what's happened mm. and that there's a sense that, you know, um, you know, there's dark, dark and jealous emotions on the part of Margaret at mm. first and then on part of the Queen. And I suppose one of the thing, ideas that I was trying to capture is that the... Uh, for the Queen, at least, there is a sense of fate involved in all of this. Mm. Like, you know, she's she cannot help, it's her fate to curse Margaret. And it's her fate to, in turn, be cursed by Child Wind. And they all kind of have this uh, sort of awareness, uh, perhaps you say subconscious, that this is the way things have to be. Mm. Um, but yes, you see, uh, it's a good point that I hadn't really thought of about, you know, the, the toad living in the foundations and the subconscious, you know, maybe there's a sense as well that mm. the order is being restored and yet she's still there somewhere. Um, and she, she's gone from Margaret's life, but possibly can never fully be gone. Yeah. Um, I, see, I, see, I see where you're coming from. I wondered whether you, you mentioned the, the, the sort of incestuous connections. Um, you surely can't have been totally blind to the fact that um, the one who is classically, totemistically, uh, the character who frees the, the poor trapped soul from their inhuman form with, their, with a kiss is, is the true love. Who returns or, or comes to, to, to save them? Um, and I, when you said when, when the, the, the the terms of the curse were given, and it was Child Wind who had to kiss her three times, you said three times kiss his own. I did wonder whether that was sort of being very deliberately reached for, 
Thank you. Uh, no, not on my part. Although, when researching this tale, I did find a note about other versions in which one of them says, um, <laughs> brother and sister are implied to be in a very overtly incestuous relationship. Um, so, uh, if, if, if I wish to steer away from the idea or the implications, then unfortunately the, his, the history does for us anyway. Uh, so, so other people certainly did. <laughs> other people certainly read it that way. Yeah. In interpretations. Mm. Um, I can't remember if it's if it is the same version, but there's uh, there's a version of this where the witch queen turns the brother into the worm or the dragon mm. and the sister is turned into the mackerel of the sea how <laughs> <laughs> quaint um, so yes there's a, there's another version called the laid I think something like the the, the laidly worm and the mackerel of the sea uh-huh. <laughs> um, but yes it's it's certainly nicer to have a certain sense of uh, you know you take these these female characters and give them motivations which are more based on companionship and social role as opposed to where it was before with the who's the prettier yeah <laughs> disappointingly common trope in, uh, in, in fairy tale. And in next week's episode, we hear the tale of a knight's quest to redeem the honour of a dear friend wounded and disgraced in battle. You've been listening to Lore and Legend, Episode 7, The Laidly Worm of Spindleston Hugh. Our story today was interpreted and performed by Rick Scott. Music in this episode was performed by Robert Bentall. With additional sounds and audio from freesounds.org. Full credit for this is available on our website. For news about upcoming episodes and more info about our stories and their sources in world folklore, find us at www.loreandlegend.co.uk or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Of Law and Legend. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more, there are a number of ways that you can support us here at Law and Legend. We're committed to keeping the episodes in this series free of adverts, but if you choose to listen to Law and Legend through the Radio Public app, Listening to a few short sponsor messages between episodes will generate some modest sponsorship money for us. You can download Radio Public for free on the Android or Apple Store. If you don't want to listen to any ads, please consider supporting the podcast through our creators page on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash law and legend. Financial support motivates us to keep on telling our stories and may allow us to develop more creative content for our listeners in future. If you can't afford to support us regularly but want to drop a few coins in the hat, you can do so using our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash law and legend. You can find all these links on our website www.lawandlegend.co.uk